to jumping without a parachute. Kinda dangerous, ain't it? Yeah. push-ups a day and you never have to be afflicted with women ever again <laughs> Sport, you are listening to I Saw It in a Movie, an advice podcast co-hosted by your friendly cinematic pals at Movie John. I am the old sport and classic coroner, Rosalie Kicks, and this is my film pal, the red herring, Ryan Silverstein. And each episode, we take a question from our listeners and go to the movies for the answer. And today we're really excited. Uh, we're being joined by Movie John contributor and co-host of the horror movie podcast, Movies to be Murdered by, Jesse Landover Prescott. Hey, Jesse. Hi, how you doing? Good. So tell us about your podcast a little bit. Um, I'm the co-host of the podcast, Movies to be Murdered by, which is a horror movie podcast Um my co-host is Jeff Watson, a horror cinema fanatic and expert. And we just sit there and, you know, discuss all things movies, really. It's just we just happen to take on the horror genre. Um, every week we have another movie that we've watched and want to, you know, dissect <laughs> Right. And that's pretty much about it. I mean, we we sometimes also will talk about, you know, movies that we've seen during the week that are, you know, not in the genre. Um, we just want to jab about a little bit. But yeah, that's our podcast. Cool. So yeah, how do you pick the movies? Or is it just any horror movie? There are some there are some movies that we pick um, together some apart. We just want to sort of talk about the movies that we love or the movies that we've been curious about. Um, some of them just totally random. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been writing for Movie John for quite some time. And I was trying to remember like how you found us. Uh, was it through Instagram <laughs> or did somebody tell you about it? I'm pretty sure that I found it through the wonderful uh, Katie Hageley, who is the uh, zine, The La La Theory. And she's also oh, based in yes. Yeah, she's based in Philadelphia, like you guys. And I'm pretty sure I saw about Movie John on her Instagram and was curious, looked into you guys, and then reached out um, to Jamie, the fixer who was just so kind when I inquired about writing for Movie John. She was so kind and so welcoming and encouraged me to submit something. Um, I wrote about my one of my most favorite movies, The Legend of Billie Jean. And she wrote me back and said that it was great and that, yes, you guys would be interested in you know, accepting my contributions. And her, her friendliness and open-mindedness really brought me in because I thought to myself, well, these, this is a group of people that absolutely adore movies and they they seem like kind folk to boot. So I want to be part of that. And I've been really happy being part of the movie John family ever since. That's so cool. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Thank you, Jamie. Well, <laughs> well, we are really excited that you're on the show today. Um, and I know you're a listener. So we start the show with talking about our flick picks. So it's yep. something that we've been watching lately or that maybe we just watched for the first time and we want to share with our listeners. So Ryan, do you want to go ahead with your pick for the week? Uh, sure. I actually uh, recently watched the 1957 film Sweet Smell of Success recently, uh, directed by Alexander McKendrick, uh, starring Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. Uh, it's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. I think it was on the Criterion channel uh, re- in the recent past, uh, and so it'll probably pop up there again in the future at some point. Uh, but this is a film I had never seen before. The The disc release is in the Criterion Collection. Um, and it's a, it's a movie that's basically just about a bunch of assholes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, like Tony Curtis plays in like a, a, uh, like a press person who was basically like trying to get his clients featured in, um, the column of like gossip society writer, JJ Hunsucker. And, it's just like the script is blistering. The dialogue is really great. Everyone is just in it for themselves, uh, except for Burt Lancaster's character who's in it for his sister. And so the whole thing kind of sets up as this like bad press campaign against the guy, the like jazz guitarist that she's dating. And then things just kind of like twist and twist and twist. And it's, it's noir. I would say it's noir adjacent rather than a like straight up noir because it's not really like a detective story, even though there are some kind of mystery elements. But it's a very witty and funny script. Uh, it's very well directed. The black and white photography is amazing, and it's it's the kind of script that like I think if you are writing screenplays, that is it's just well worth studying because both in the the structure and in the dialogue, there's a lot I think to take away from this movie. Yeah, I actually watched it recently myself. And it was funny because when I had turned it on, I couldn't remember if I had watched it before. Because it was before like I started using Letterboxd so avidly. Uh, But watching it, I quickly realized, no, I had not seen this before. And I too, I really enjoyed it. But I agree with you, like I feel it has the noir aspects to it. But I wouldn't say that it's a full up, like straight noir. Yeah, so I would definitely, definitely recommend it. Um, Jesse, have you seen Sweet Smell of Success? I haven't actually. Um, as Rosalie knows, I, <laughs> I am a very, very much still like a novice and a, a student in um, older, older movies. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely the same way. Most of the movies uh, that that I'm watching these days are are movies from like pre 1980 that are new to me. So, nice. you know, um, I definitely still think of myself in that student mindset. Um, so, Jesse, what's something you have watched recently that you wanted to share with the audience? Um, well, I've been doing these um, evenings alone in my office, um, picking out my. Through, picking through my VHS library and just having quiet time, which is totally necessary when you're a parent. Um, <laughs> I love my kid, but it's really nice to just have some time of totally alone. 
So um, my VHS library is my best pal right now. And I actually went back um, through the archives and watched Straight Talk, uh, 1992's rom-com wish fulfillment starring Dolly Parton and James Woods and Griffin Dunn. It was directed by Barnett Kelman. Really good, really fun movie. I had seen it years ago. I must have seen it in the 90s. Um, I remember watching it with my mom and loving it. And it holds up. I I would say it's it's a really silly but oddly touching movie. Um, Dolly Parton runs the show. She's amazing, as Dolly is. Um, she just proves she's a really, like, she's she can do comedy, obviously. Um, but she's also just really... Uh, accessible her character is really accessible and totally lands right square in the middle of this rom-com genre that I'm not too I'm not too much of a a, a rom-com fan but I really like this movie Um, it doesn't stray from its focus she plays um, a character who leaves her deadbeat boyfriend her deadbeat living boyfriend who's played by Michael Madsen yay (laughs) and (laughs) runs off to Chicago, because that's her dream. She runs off to Chicago and is staying in like, just, it looks like Skid Row uh, in this awful flea bag motel. And, but she lands by accident uh, uh, at a radio station where it's a whole mix up, quote unquote, and she ends up becoming their new advice uh, doctor. <laughs> The the radio station has been waiting for this uh, psychologist to arrive, who's going to be their new radio host, <clears throat> dispensing advice. And, you know, her character winds up in the same spot and they assume that it's the doctor and she lands this totally cush job and wins the hearts of, you know, all of metropolitan Chicago as the new radio personality and, you know, manages to fall in love with James Woods, who falls in love back with her. And it's just a lovely little movie. It's really charming. And it's not unlike actually like the, the movies of uh, of yesteryear where there's a mix up and it's kind of goofy and there's a romance and, you know, unlikely characters. And, you know, it's and it's not too, and it's kind of lighthearted. It just it's lovely. It's playing on all of those tropes. And, but Dolly really, Dolly is just lovely and it's everybody should see this movie. Yeah. So Ben and I actually got a Blu-ray copy of this. I think we found it at like a thrift store or something. And he had known of the film. I had not seen it before. And we watched it, I believe like last year. And I thought it was great. Like it was just a fun little movie. And like you said, it definitely has those elements of like the old classic, like screwball comedy where mm-hmm. she just kind of finds herself, um, you know, randomly in this situation. And then it just starts working out for her. Then all of a sudden they figure out, Oh wait, you are not a doctor. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's really fun. Uh, and Ryan, I don't know if you've seen it, but you should check it out. Uh, I have not, but I will actually, I will watch anything with Dolly Parton in it because her, she's just a, um, she's just such a great presence on screen in general and just such a wonderful seeming human being. So uh, I will definitely have to add it to my watch list for sure. 
Yes, agree. I agree and agree. She's she's a good she's a good person and she lights up the screen. Dolly can't really Dolly can't do too too wrong. Her music is adorable. She's adorable. She's fierce. Um, I don't want to turn this into the Dolly Parton you know <laughs> podcast, but she's just she's so fierce and and she's so super intelligent. If anyone has a chance to read up on her a little bit, definitely recommend that you do. Dolly's got so so Dolly's got so many brains behind her beauty. It's not even funny. So. Yep, that's what uh, I've been watching. <laughs> yeah, my wife did listen to uh, the Dolly Parton's America podcast, um, which was kind of exploring why Dolly Parton is so beloved and kind of like the you know the reasons behind her success and everything. So uh, there is a Dolly Parton podcast that I can recommend people check out. <laughs> Very cool, Rosie. Um, what have you been watching? Yeah, so my pick for this week is the 1986 film Malcolm, which was directed by Nadia Tess. And it's an Australian film. Uh, Ben, my husband, was actually the one that found this movie. And I'm so glad he did because I found it. It was just really quirky and it definitely... It was right up my alley, I should say, for one. And it's also inspiring to me because I'm working on a script that this movie kind of had a lot of elements that I hope to have in my story. Um, But it tells the tale about a shy guy named Malcolm who likes to tinker with like different things like random junk and trash and kind of turn it into something awesome. But essentially, he uses his skills to hatch a plan and rob banks. And the film opens up with him getting fired from his job, which seemed like it was with the transit authority. And I did look up the film. It was shot in Australia. That's where the director was from. And Malcolm got fired because he was building his own tram and he would basically take out this tram at night and like go on joy rides. And when he came back from one of his trips, the manager saw him and they fired him. So after he's fired, he decides to rent out a room in his house. He lives in kind of this big house for a single guy and his and you learn that his mom had passed away at some point so he's just living there alone but obviously without having a job he has to pay bills so he lets this guy Frank who recently was released from prison move in and that's where he starts scheming about robbing banks because that's something that Frank was doing previously And I don't know, this was just, it was a really fun, like simple story. Um, But at the end of the film, like you just feel good. And it was definitely something that I needed to watch at this point in time. And I did do a little search. It seems to only be available on um, Vimeo for rent, or you can buy it from there. And it's like three or $5. So it's not very costly, but I would highly recommend checking it out. That sounds like so much fun. Yeah, I definitely always enjoy a good caper. Yeah, Yeah. and I think you both would really enjoy the setting. Like, within his house, there's, like, he built all these, like, model train sets. So, like, trains, like, it kind of reminded me of, like, a Pee Wee um, Herman's house. 
Like there was just kind of like these random inventions that he made to do things. And it was just really cool. And essentially like that's how they end up robbing this bank is through like these robots he made. Uh, So it was just really cool and creative. And of course, like I'm always excited to see when something was made or directed by a lady and especially a film from 1986. I thought that was pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool. I'm, I feel the same way. I feel the same yeah. way. And I love to. I love that it's about someone who is <clears throat> an inventor. You know. And yes. And that's <laughs> that's the, must be the coolest thing. The coolest way anyone's ever gotten fired for getting caught, like coming back <laughs> from a joyride on a tram they built. <laughs> like, that's awesome. Yeah, I think, and I don't want to spoil it, um, but there are just some really crazy scenes in this as well, which also, again, after, you know, recently making my own film, whenever I see independent films like this, like just kind of really going all out there, it's exciting to me. And yeah, again, I think you should both check it out. I'm definitely going to look it up. Yeah, me too. Okay, so are you guys ready to get to this week's question? Absolutely. Definitely. Okay. Dear I Saw in a Movie, what's your favorite 80s flick adaptation? Stay Rad, Bookworm. So, Red Herring, do you want to start us off this week? Absolutely. Um, So we we talked a little bit before uh, we started recording that... For me, the 80s, 80s books are kind of a blind spot for me, I guess. Um, and so it took me a while to come up with an answer to this. And so I picked a movie that I knew was based on the book and I had not read the book, but was very curious about it. So uh, my pick for this was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, which is directed by Robert Zemeckis. It came out in 1988 and it was based on Who Censored Roger Rabbit. Uh, which was written by Gary K. Wolf and came out in 1981. So as soon as the book came out, it really started to get developed into a film. Like people seemed very excited by the idea in Hollywood. Um, But it's a very, very loose adaptation. So, um, you know, in, in the movie, they are like animated cartoons. Um, So, you know, we have Roger Rabbit, uh, who's a, and baby Herman who are new characters uh, and Jessica Rabbit who are like new new characters debuting in the movie but the world is populated with uh donald duck and daffy duck and mickey mouse and bugs bunny and betty boop uh, but in the novel the tunes are comic strip characters so they speak in word balloons um and so they like they film their strips but they're like still images so they'll do like three you know uh, and that'll be like the comic strip that gets printed so in the um, in the book, the cameos are like Dick Tracy, Hagar the Horrible, Dagwood and Blondie, Beetle Bailey shows up. So like, it's an entirely different like already. It's a different world because they're talking about comic strip characters versus like animated cartoon characters. Um, and it's still it's still a noir mystery story, but the the plot is entirely different. Like they basically brought over just. Um, those three characters I mentioned, Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit, and Baby Herman, uh, and a couple other details. And 
a few lines of dialogue. Um, I think in, I think one of them is the uh, Jessica Rabbit's like famous like I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Um, like that's from the book, but very little else survived the adaptation, which I think is really interesting because I think that shows that you know they took the idea they, they found this book, great idea, and then completely reinvented it for the screen to make it a good movie because as someone who reads a lot and I always, if I'm going to see a movie that is based on a book, I always want to try to read the book first because I want the book to have its own sort of space in my mind. So then I can approach the movie. Like I, if I read the book after I watch the movie, then I'm going to fill in the book like characters and what they look like and what they act like with like the actors from the film, because it's just the way that my brain works. Um, so this I hadn't seen since I was a kid, um, actually, like on TV. So I sat down and watched it like for the first time as an adult, and I really enjoyed it. It's really fun. Um, the adaptation itself was done by Jeffrey Price and uh, Peter S. Seaman, who they went on to write Wild Wild West, the Jim Carrey version of The Grinch, uh, and Shrek 3. So like, I feel like this is definitely... Like, I can see the through line between all of those projects, even though those are not known for being well-written. And I think that Kufri and Roger Rabbit is actually a very well-written movie in terms of both the story and the dialogue and everything. Um, you know, it's. I think the, the, the biggest strength and weakness of the movie is this, like, weird combination where you have, you know, Disney is a big force behind it. They produced it with Amblin. So you have like Michael Eisner, Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, Kathleen Kennedy, all like producing this movie. And, you know, you have Robert Zemeckis directing and he wanted to bring in like the Disney quality animation, Warner Brothers type characters and like Tex Avery uh, humor. So we see like Droopy Dog and um, a lot of really like outlandish and exaggerated cartoon reactions. And, um, it works and it doesn't work at the same time for me. So, I, but you know, as a as an exercise of taking a book and then completely reinventing it so it makes sense in the movie, I thought it was like just an interesting example for us to talk about. Um, I mean, this movie is really popular, so I presume that both of you guys have seen it. I uh, I actually shame on me. I'm going to announce a, a, a cinematic, you know, guilty. Uh, confession, Ryan. I know you know about this from your with your um, with your other podcast, right? Mm -hmm. um, I the shame files. I'm shame filing myself that I've never seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, I remember when it came out. You know, I was little, but I remember it was a really big deal, like you said. And there was just something about his voice and the look of the film, um, the way that the uh, titular character was drawn and sounded and the colors and Bob Hoskins just, it kind of gave me like a, 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 just like almost like a nauseous feeling, like a headache. So, <laughs> I don't want to, I mean, I know it's, it's supposed to be a really good movie. So it's like, you know, but it just really, that's how I remember feeling about it. And I've just never given it a chance. <laughs> uh, well, I, I will validate at least some of those feelings because watching it, <laughs> especially as an adult, at least. Um, I, I will say I love Bob Hoskins' performance, and he's the reason why the movie works at all, because he's very believable both interacting with the Toon characters, but he also, you know, like, uh, 
his like line at the beginning because he's like a detective character is that like a tune killed his brother mm. and so he's like prejudiced against them but you know forced to work with roger rabbit so they have you know it's kind of a buddy comedy neo-noir kind of thing but his performance is very grounded like he feels like a real person who has to deal with these ridiculous characters uh and so like the movie works because of him i found roger rabbit extremely annoying like uh <laughs> like watching this i was like uh anytime he was on screen i was like this is just too much and it's really, <laughs> uh you know a little he, he's just obnoxious and like as a kid like that's can be a great quality in a movie you know when you're five or six years old and you're like oh my god like i love this character he's so insane mm-hmm. uh, but as an adult i was like this this could be dialed down a little bit and i think <laughs> I think I'd be okay with that. <clears throat> I think I was thinking the way you're thinking now back then, and I was probably like <laughs> seven when the movie came out. Yeah. My arms crossed, like, Bob Hoskins is doing a believable American accent, but I don't know about the rest of this cast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in my house growing up, we didn't have a lot of VHS tapes, but we did have Roger Rabbit. And my brother and I watched this movie so much. Uh, We both loved the film, but similar to what you're saying, Ryan, I I remember like it was, again, a staple in our house when we were of a certain age. And then, of course, like I got older, I, I stopped watching it. But then I think I may have watched it like in my late 20s. And I was just so surprised that we were allowed to watch it as children. Because there are a lot of things that are like a lot of the jokes, I think, went over my head when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. That then when I was watching it as an adult, I was picking up on. But also some of the imagery still, I, I remember as a child scared me. Like I, I remember when I made the connection that Christopher Lloyd, um, judge doom was yeah. doc Brown. And I, I thought that that was so wild. Like as a child, mm-hmm. I was like, how is that the same person? Because he is so, I feel for a child, he is terrifying in who framed Roger rabbit. Oh yeah, there's there's a part where he um, subjects a animated shoe to the dip. Oh, which I hate that. I character. hate it. Uh, which also was not in the book, by the way. Tunes in the book are just you know you could shoot one and they would die, just like regular people. Um, but that is one of the most like sadistic and just uncomfortable things I think I've seen in a movie in a long time. Like it's I was terrifying. Therapy. Yeah, it's it's very scary and it's very unsettling and it's just so like I feel like there's a lot of kids movies where you don't see uh, on screen deaths, you know what I mean? And like I've been going through the Friday the Thirteenth series uh, and I watched one last night where you know someone gets like cut in half basically, but you don't even actually see them get cut in half because they're like where the cut is happening is below the frame. Okay. And I was like, this is less disturbing to me than. Uh, you know, Judge Doom dipping the shoe into nothing. <laughs> well, and spoil here, and you know, Jesse, sorry, I, I, I don't know if you're going to check out the film, uh, but the part towards the end when Judge Doom like reveals himself, mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, like I could not watch that. 
it scared me so much. Like when his eyes became daggers, mm-hmm. it, it gave me nightmares. But I think as a kid, I really liked the character Roger Rabbit, but I'll agree with you watching it again as an adult. I found him to be, he, he, he gets on your nerves. Like after a while, you're just like, dude, tone it down. Like I'm exhausted <laughs> and you just need, you need to chill. You just need to chill. And maybe that just makes me identify with uh, Bob Hoskins character that much more. Yeah. Uh, you, you definitely understand his need for liquor. Like oh, totally. when he's around Roger, because Roger is like, somebody who drank three pots of coffee, like within an hour, like he's just nonstop. And yeah, I, I think if I was Bob Hoskins, I would have probably thrown him out the window. Yeah. And, and overall, <laughs> like, I really like the story, the, uh, you know, all the technical stuff in terms of the way they integrate the animation with the live action, uh, all of the like effects work and everything, like all that holds up extremely well. Like it, Roger was the thing I, I disliked about the movie the most, but otherwise, well, I really enjoyed it. And honestly, you know, you think about it in terms of filmmaking now, and what would be the likelihood that Disney and Warner Brothers would work together to make a film? Oh, I mean. It would be impossible because, like, this only happened because this is before, like, this came out before The Little Mermaid. So, like, Disney is at its, like, lowest point, you know. Uh, Warner Brothers not really doing much with the Looney Tunes characters at the time because this is before, like, Tiny Toons and, like, all the, you know, all the kind of 90s animation renaissance that was across Disney and a bunch of other studios. Like, that hadn't happened yet. So, like, this is at the point where they were, like, I don't want to say desperate, but, like, more willing to engage in these ideas and even be a little bit experimental because this is right after uh michael eisner became disney ceo so he was like you know i need to make my mark i need to make bold moves because the company needs to you know we need new blood and new ideas so um it was like the right environment for them to even consider it and that would definitely not happen today now in terms of the book did the book deal anything with like this freeway or highway nope. that was trying to be made or that was all just the movie? Nope. That was, they added that to the movie because they wanted to really evoke Chinatown. Okay. Uh, you know, and it's, it's set basic more or less in the 1940s. Um, you know, and so they, they were really going for that Chinatown. I mean, the book definitely has noir elements and it is still a detective story, but uh, they really added all and all that stuff is real in terms of like you know um bob hoskins at the beginning is like oh Los like oh, i want to have a car in los angeles it has the best public transportation system in the world and i was like wait what really and then the you know and then they introduce like three minutes after that that the uh highway people are like buying up the public transportation i was like oh okay and then i kind of looked it up and it all that stuff is based on you know true things that happen right um so that, that's kind of a cool, like, this, it's a very smart movie. And I think, you know, out, like I said, outside of Roger, I think it's very fun, very clever, tons of stuff for adults, uh, as well as, you know, humor for the kids will, kids will get. So. Yeah, it's just, again, one of those weird 80s movies that was, I guess, intended for children, but it's actually for adults. Like. <laughs> And I feel that there were quite a number of those that came out during that 
time period. Yeah, I feel like the idea of the family movie where like the whole family can go and people are all, everyone is entertained even if it's by slightly different parts of the movie, I think doesn't really exist anymore in that same, in that same way. Oh, definitely not. I mean, could you imagine if a movie like, well, if Roger Rabbit came out now, like I don't remember what it was rated then, but I almost feel like it would be teetering towards an R. Yeah, yeah it I was mean, rated PG back then. Right. Yeah, it would have to be at least PG-13 today just because of the way Jessica Rabbit moves. Like, <laughs> um, you know, her, the way her, I mean, the way her body is drawn, one, obviously her proportions are actually impossible, which I feel like is actually kind of a weird commentary, but also really just, you know, also just embracing that and trying to make her as sexy as possible. But um, there was some stuff where I was like, I can't imagine, like, like I was just thinking, you know, I was two when this movie came out, but had I been old enough to go see it with my parents, like I would have melted into the theater seat during those scenes. (laughs) This is amazing, but I, I I can't deal with this right now. Uh, Uh, So Jesse, what did, what did you, uh, what did you end up picking for uh, this question? Um, I ended up going with the witches of Eastwick. Um, which is a, a novel written by John Updike, and uh, the movie uh, was directed by George Miller of uh, Mad Max uh, fame. Um, I have to admit, I had tried to read The Witches of Eastwick several times um, throughout the years, and just really kind of kept almost like stuttering at the same parts in the very beginning and just couldn't quite move past the beginning. Um, It seemed too slow, but, you know, I was like, I was determined. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to read the, you know, I'm going to read the whole book because I love the movie so much. I'm going to read the book. I'm finally going to, you know, get through this. Perhaps it has a slow start and, you know, kind of builds to a better middle and end. um, And really, be able to recommend this to our, you know, our uh, questioner. But I'm, I'm just going to put it out there that I, I don't know. I think this, uh, I'm pretty sure this book is going to fall into my, I liked the movie better than the book category, which is very, which is a barrel that has only a few coins in it. (laughs) This is not, you know, it's not likely, it's not usual for that to happen. I think for most people, um, especially for most readers slash, you know, uh, cinephiles, it's always the fact that, you know, the, the book is better. But um, I've had this experience once before where I'm kind of on the edge, but I think I have to toss that penny in. Um, the Talented Mr. Ripley. I really love Patricia Highsmith, um, but that book also has to go into the, the, that's one of the coins that's already floating in there with the movie was better than the book. Um, So the Witches of Eastwick movie was, as I said, uh, directed by George Miller, came out in 1987, uh, starring Jack Nicholson as the devil, and Cher, Susan Sarandon, and Michelle Pfeiffer as the three titular witches. Um, The book and the movie take place in uh, the town of uh, Eastwick in Rhode Island. 
Uh, the movie was actually filmed in Massachusetts because uh, the people in Rhode Island were just sort of really torn about whether they wanted that movie with all of its, you know, um, allusions to witchcraft and the devil and sex and all kinds of naughty stuff really being filmed in their in their state and in their towns. So they just uh, and Massachusetts lobbied hard for the movie to come to their state. So they just said, what the heck? Close enough. <laughs> and um, yeah, um, the book and the movie definitely split ways. Um, pretty, pretty far off and pretty, pretty quickly straight on. Um, the book actually takes place in the 1960s, um, with the three witches actually knowing that they're witches and having meetings and casting spells and being very well, well, I'm sorry, very well versed in all of these witchy things that they do in the movie. Um, the three characters, the three women don't know that they have these powers um, until the arrival of Jack Nicholson, who sort of elicits um, their company and starts drawing out their mystical powers. Um, But it's all very new. It's all very novel and it's all very fun for the women in the movie. Um, Whereas in the book, uh, the basically the women, the three women in the book are in their own ways, very jaded and unhappy. Um, they're all saddled down with all kinds of problems and just even like in one, the case of one character, the character that Cher plays is so radically different <laughs> than the character in the book. She is, you know, um, sort of like, overweight that comes up that's something that keeps coming up throughout the whole book her weight and um she's clearly got depression pretty badly it's it's so different it, the tone is different that you know obviously because of the time frame but also just the, the looks of the characters their motivations the witches in the book are they make no bones about <clears throat> this is one aspect that i did enjoy they make no bones about uh, who they are they make no bones about uh, doing quote unquote evil and bad things. They make no bones about having affairs like adulterous affairs with the men in town. Um, they have their own sort of rhyme and reason and logic for their actions, which is, which was pretty interesting. Um, they do have some redeeming qualities. Um, the it's, it's fun to see the one thing that's pretty fun to see when you when you have read this book is it's fun to see what they did extract from the book and place into the movie because it seems that they it's like they 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 used spices from they they took from the first book and spiced their stew with it for the movie which is which is nice because you do see like oh okay that's that's that character and um you know for instance there's a character in the in, in both, his name is Walter Neff, and he's just like a lech. And so he gets a lot more time in the book than in the movie, um, descriptions and actions and his wife and what she's like. <clears throat> and in the novel, they I'm, I'm sorry, in the movie, they take that character and he's in there, but he's just like, he's a very minor character. And they kind of make a joke about his wife that alludes to all of the, you know, characterization of her in the novel. 
and that's kind of those those little things I love about movies that have been adapted. Those are those are the fun, the fun parts. Um, in terms of the, the the book is like the book and the movie to me share the most basic of problems. That is, if they're trying to tell the story of women's power. And, and, and in this case, you know, using the example of witches being sourcing this like primordial, you know, power and, and, and essence of, of womanhood. And they're all, you know, um, in the book, they're all mothers. In the movie, Cher and Michelle Pfeiffer are mothers, but Susan Sarandon's character is not. Um, but it's all but it's all orchestrated by men like John Updike wrote the book um and then George Miller directed the movie and I mean that's all fine and good but I would now as a as a grown-up I just like as Rosie said you know what I took for granted as a child because I did see this movie when I was little I was probably like eight and I don't know what I was doing watching this movie but it was one of my favorite movies when I was really little um um I just, I, I just wonder, like, you know, how different it would be, and how much better it would be to actually have a woman with, like, you know, a, a woman screenwriter uh, adapting the story and really giving it its full 100%, you know, female perspective. And it doesn't have to be a certain female female perspective, any female perspective, you know. Um, just would, I would, I would just love to see that. I just, I think it just would have would have made more sense and frankly it would have made me feel less angsty so and since the whole world revolves around me that's all that matters <laughs> yeah um, so this was a movie that again I saw too when I was younger uh but then again revisited as an adult and I remember as a child watching it and I thought it was scary and then when I watched it as an adult, I thought it was very hokey. Hmm. Uh, but I guess it doesn't surprise me when you were saying, I remember when you were texting me while you were reading it, that you felt like the book was kind of like a slog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Which, which, you know, I guess it wasn't shocking to me, but because it's not a book that I've heard people talk about, but it's definitely a movie that people have mentioned quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. I don't know how I didn't see that coming, but I didn't. <laughs> um, I thought it was, it was one of those situations where, you know, it's John Updike. Whoa. Even though I've never been a fan of his works, I know he's considered one of the best American writers, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, just further proof that you don't have to listen to anybody's anything about canon and whatnot. I'm sorry. I just, I, I just can't, <laughs> I can't, but uh, um, he's just never been my cup of tea, but I figured they made such a fun movie out of this. The book has got to be, it's got to at least give me more time with these characters and figure out, like be able to figure out like, you know, what their motivations were more so than the movie ever gives you, you know? And that's usually my interest in reading books that are then adapted into movies because I feel like you know I you know in certain movies that you really enjoy or that you're really curious about you don't ever get enough time 
Um, obviously, unless you're making, you know, a really like an epic or a saga or two-parter with the characters. So I always want to know more. Tell me more. I want to know, like, you know, what they were like when they grew up. What, you know, what happened after the movie ends, you know, et cetera. And this movie really didn't satisfy too much of that. Um, the most interesting part of the book in terms of the characters and getting to know them was actually... Um, Clyde and his wife Felicia who in the movie spoiler alert Felicia is this really fascinating character who decries the arrival of the devil in Eastwick but because she goes about it in this quote-unquote like you know hysterical screaming woman fashion people just think she's she's mad and they don't take her seriously they just like she's become this spectacle um, she was pre previous to like all of this, she was very respected, you know, and very visible character, um, in their community. And her husband runs the newspaper actually where Suki, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character works. So she just keeps announcing like there's evil afoot, there's evil afoot, like the, you know, the devil is here kind of, so to speak. And nobody pays attention to her, but her husband does. But he's also really get growing sick and tired of her just kind of being off her rocker. And in this one scene, um, he ends up killing her. But it's done in a very clever way where you just you don't see the murder. You can kind of see illusions of it, like from an outside shot through the window. But it's far away enough that you don't you can't quite make it out. In fact, when I was little, I had no idea that he had killed her. I just. When you're little, you fill in the fill in the gaps, like nonsensically. I don't know if you guys remember doing that, but like if a movie just like randomly like jump cut jump cuts from like one scene to another with no no logical connection, as a little kid, you're like, yeah, sure, <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, there's like there's just a, there's just a piece missing, and I did that with this movie. Like I I never understood that like that Clyde kills his wife Felicia. And that that's why the next morning we see the three witches like outside their house crying and fighting. And you see like cop cars everywhere and ambulances everywhere. Like I was just like, oh, OK, I, get, I know the, the woman died, but whatever. Like I didn't make that connection. Um, yeah, I definitely feel like that. Again, going back to like Roger Rabbit as a kid, like jokes are said and you didn't understand them. But you're just like, ah, eh, whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and totally. then like watching watching it as an adult, you're like, oh, actually, what they're saying was important. And <laughs> you know, as a child, I really didn't understand or grasp the full story about what was going on. But in your mind, you kind of just make it up, like, oh, okay, this happened. Right. And similar, you know, especially when it came to like horror or scary films that I watched as a child, there were definitely parts where I probably shut my eyes and I like, didn't actually see what was happening. And I built it up into this more scarier thing than it actually was. And then when I went back and watched it as an adult, I'm like, that was it. That's all that happened. But as a child, I made it out to seem so much worse, like closing my eyes and my imagination would just take over at that point. Right. So it's kind of funny, you know, what you remember from a movie as a kid and then you watch it as an adult. 
Right, right. Or your feelings take over, and those feelings are way bigger than than any movie, you know, <laughs> than the movie was ever going to give you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this so this movie has a really special place in my heart. Um, I loved it as a little kid. Um, not to, I'm not trying to sound like a big baddie. I just never got scared by it. I always loved how much fun they were having, the witches were having. And, you know, during, you know, like the first part of the movie when they're kind of like finding out about their own powers and because the movie also doesn't, the movie doesn't like, it doesn't show them casting spells, doing, doing things, you know, evil things. It's like, it's a very light film in that sense. And you get, and all you get in terms of the evil is Jack Nicholson and like what he brings to it. But it's all done so coyly that, you know, you're not seeing him like, you know, you know, sacrificing an animal and draining its blood or doing anything, you know, um, cliched like that to, to frighten people. It's just he has this darkness that's very well hidden. And uh, if you're if you're astute enough, you you pick up on that pretty quickly. Um, but if you're a little kid like I was, you don't really you know, he's a bad guy, but you just, I fell in love with the three actresses. I loved seeing them on screen. You know, I'm a big fan of Cher and Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, so, and then the, the score, I mean, the score of the movie is brilliant. It's beautiful. Um, it's John Williams, John Williams, anybody, uh, recognize that, that little composer's name. <laughs> um, the score is just a plus. Um, I have it on, on vinyl and it's just it still holds up I can just put it on and it's gorgeous um John Updike actually wrote a sequel to this book uh this is his last book uh called The Widows of Eastwick and honestly I will just spare you any sort of summary of it because it just sounds totally abysmal it got poor, it got poorly reviewed and um is just like a very weak sequel. I think probably should have just left it alone. Um, I will say though that, you know, he, and going back just for a second to like what we were talking about with like maybe a woman being at the helm of any of this, um, since it, you know, has to deal with women <laughs> and women's issues. Um, John Updike had said when the book came out um, that his novel was about female power and the patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's critic and, you know, his critics said, you know, that because the witches depended so much on the relationship with Daryl, John, uh, Jack Nicholson's character, AKA the devil, that it really wasn't about what he was saying. I mean, people have said, and people have two minds, uh, what I've read throughout the years, because I've always followed this movie to, you know, in it's afterlife. Um, people that have the same argument about the movie you know, whether it's really about female power or whether it's really more about their dependence on men. Um, but I will say that in my opinion, the movie gives much better conversation to the story being about the bond between the women um, more so than the book does, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's about it. Um, yeah, that's this. kind of that's kind of interesting, I guess, you know, hearing that about the movie compared to the book, being that the movie was primarily made by men, that they chose to focus more on their friendship 
Yeah, it was. It was. You see, even in the in the differences, like you see in the movie, when things start going badly, and um, for all of the women, they they start to get shunned. People are they have a very they live in a very small town, Eastwick, and people are talking about them, you know, having orgies up at the house, um, doing drugs, all kinds of things, and basically just spreading all kinds of rumors, like the most hideous kind for that type of town at the time. And um, Michelle Pfeiffer's character immediately is like, you know, listen, let's just like not see each other, all of us for like a while and like take some time off and just breathe and let these rumors pass. And then we'll reconvene and see what happens, which was like a very non, you know, I thought it was like a very non hokey way to handle their relationship because if the movie was truly about you know let's just you know uh settle down with our new guy and do whatever he says they wouldn't even be having that conversation and they wouldn't be actually going through with that you know with that promise to like wait it out and then just kind of you know maybe move on with their lives right um, for the sake of their themselves for the sake of their well-being for the sake of their families their kids you know um I don't know. It just it just comes across in a, in a much in a much clearer way than the book does. Um, I don't know. I, don't know. No, I just I, I like I like the I like the nuance in the directness of the characters' actions in the movie way more um, than in the novel. And you would think that it would be the other way around because in the book you can get all kinds of details and motivations. You know. Um, expressed in a quiet way than sometimes you can in movies but actually the movie manages to do that in like leaps and bounds beyond what the book does in my opinion yeah i've i've been going through uh george miller's filmography but i haven't gotten to this one quite yet mm -hmm. um but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. i actually didn't realize it was based on a john updike novel and i think what's so interesting about adaptation in general is that it's someone else's perspective on a story that they didn't write typically. Like, obviously there are examples where people adapt their own work to another medium, but uh, I think it's, I think it's really interesting to take something and, you know, if Uptake says this book is about female power and then people read that book and they're like, mm, buddy, I don't think you got it. And then <laughs> people come along to turn that into another medium. And they're like, no, if it's meant to be about female power, let's actually make it about female power. And I think, you know, it, it's just interesting how those kind of ideas, you know, uh, transform and grow. And like I said, as different perspectives come into contact with them, it can almost make it for a stronger story overall. You know what I mean? Like, so maybe Updike had a good idea, but given who he was and his perspective, he wasn't really able to execute it. And there, but there's still, there's still something there that, you know, can be brought into something else. Yeah. Agreed. You said it. You said it. There you go. <laughs> And there you have it. Uh, Rosalie, what did you pick for this for this question? Yes. So I struggled a bit with answering the question because, as I was mentioning to you both before we started recording, I don't really consider myself well-read. In fact, Jesse can attest to, I really only recently have gotten into reading in like the last year and a half uh, or so. So when I saw this question come through, what I decided to do was to find an 80s movie 
that I've been meaning to check out and to see if it was based on a book. And that's how Watcher in the Woods hit my radar. Uh, Ben and I had actually purchased the DVD, oh, I would say like over a year ago. Um, We were like getting into watching 80s films that were supposedly made for children, but they actually were more like nightmare fuel. And I don't know if either of you have watched Something Wicked This Way Comes, but that was a film that Ben had said he had watched when he was younger and thought that it was rather scary and I had never seen it. So like, that's kind of what started our quest in watching these films. So at the same time, we picked up Watcher in the Woods and it was made in 1980. It stars Betty Davis and Lynn Holly Johnson. And it was actually based on a book from 1976 Uh, with the same title, written by Florence Engel Randall. And, you know, I picked this film as well, because as you both know, I love old um, classic film. And being that this starred Betty Davis, I've been trying to make my way through her filmography, which she was in about 120 movies. So it's quite extensive. So I have a bit of a ways to go. Um, But she was the one that obviously made me pick this. And she made this movie obviously rather late in her career. She passed away in 89. So in this movie, she didn't play a major role. She took on more of a minor uh, acting role, but she's still really great in it. And, you know, you also can't go wrong with a children's movie that features seances, rituals, and witchcraft. And then there is also a puppy that is featured in the movie quite a bit who happens to be named by a ghost. So it had a lot of good things going for it. Uh, Now, as for the comparison with the book, I will say, uh, similar to Jesse, I probably enjoyed the movie more so than the book. Um, But I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, Have either of you seen this movie? Not yet. Not yet. It's been Uh, on it's been on my radar for a while, but I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it either. Okay. Well, obviously, you know, sorry, but I'm probably going to spoil it a little bit. Uh, But essentially, the story is about a family that moves into this beautiful, isolated home that's literally, it's like located in the middle of a forest. So it's like the scenery and the landscape is actually, it's really beautiful. Uh, But when the realtor shows them the home, she warns the family about the owner who is currently living there, Mrs. Alwood, who is played by Betty Davis. And, you know, she's an elderly, fussy old lady, like her hair is very crazed looking, like she almost looks like a witch. Uh, So when the family meets her, uh, you know, she decides after talking with them and meeting the two daughters that she decides, you know what, okay, I will sell you my property, which has kind of been an issue for the realtor. Like she's been showing this house, but every time she brings people over 
interested buyers, the uh, Betty Davis either scares them away or says, you know, no, they cannot buy the house. So the fact that she was letting this family move in, you know, really obviously pleased the realtor. And it is later learned that the reason Betty is allowing the family to move in is that she senses from the young daughters that they could assist her with bringing back her missing daughter who was lost many years ago without a trace. And so the opening of the film is very similar to the book, but then that's kind of from that point on is where it really starts to take a turn down another road. I would say in the book, it's more her daughter went into the woods and didn't come back. And you don't really know what happened. So there's just a lot of mystery to it. And obviously it's very eerie and creepy. Whereas in the movie, they're more saying, well, her daughter was playing with these children and they were performing some sort of ritual and the girl disappeared. So it kind of leans more towards this like witchcraft aspect um, which is interesting. And I really did enjoy like the whole plot and the setup. And like I said, the, the production design of the film, like the cinematography, everything is really gorgeously shot. Uh, but there, there was just some things that seemed to be missing. And when I went back and was like looking up some facts about the film. Apparently it had a lot of script problems. Uh, there were many hands that touched the story. And this is also a Disney picture. So apparently, you know, Disney felt when the movie was being made that it was basically too dark for children. And what I find interesting about that is when they sold this movie to be made, one of the producers basically said that this could be their exorcist. And so it kind of shocked me, you know, that Disney even went forward with making this movie from the beginning anyway. Uh, but I do remember, you know, hearing from other people, like as I got older, I, again, never watched this movie as a child, but I do remember that it did scare children and, I think it's weird that in this 80s era, how many movies got made like this that were meant for children, but they were actually really creepy. Amen. <laughs> yeah, like I like I don't know, have either of you seen the Something Wicked This Way Comes? Because that one was also one, you know, again, like, Ben and I had talked and he had said like that scared him as a child. That was also based on a book. That was a Ray Bradbury book. And yeah. Uh, and um, the title is actually from Shakespeare by the pricking of my thumbs. Something wicked this way, this something wicked. This oh, way comes. okay. Yeah. Um, I, I was always too scared to watch that movie. I mean, I, I still want to read that book, but I'm almost like too chicken too, just because of the title. <laughs> so I have not, I have, that's a long answer. I've not seen that, seen that movie. I think I saw that when I was a kid. Cause I think that also was on uh, the, the Disney channel uh, a, a bunch, but I was also thinking about the witches, which is a movie that scared me as a kid. Yeah. Um, okay. Which is 
based on a uh, Roald Dahl book. So that's a that's a 1990 movie with uh, Angelica Houston as the head witch, and they turn kids into uh, mice. I think it is. So I feel like one thing that older kids movies get away with is the harm coming to children. Yes, because actually that's a really great point because in this movie, in Watcher in the Woods, there is many visions that uh, the family, the daughters actually see of Betty Davis's missing child where the girl is blindfolded because she's like stuck basically in this kind of like time warp of sorts. And the one daughter keeps seeing her missing daughter, Karen, blindfolded, like trying to find her way out. And it's really, yes. And, you know, to Ryan's point, they really did get away with like kind of this torturing of children, which I think is something we were discussing on a previous episode with Nick. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about uh, Dr. Sleep and how, you know, but obviously that's a movie for adults. Correct. Yeah. But still, you don't often see children being harmed or, you know, tortured or murdered on film. But during this period of time, they would do that. And it's just really kind of interesting, but also like, why were they I guess, showing that in a children's film? Curious question, definitely. And it comes up a lot about the 80s, um, just being an 80s hound myself, you know, and um, and even just the fact that a lot of um, a lot of us 80s kids were like watching these movies to begin with or like just not just watching these movies, but like all kinds of like, you know, terrible movies or adult, you know, movies um, that we shouldn't have been. There was just I don't know, there was some sort of like portal for the 80s where just everything, everything goes, you know, it was, it was really, I, I felt like it was for, for kids movies, there was like pretty reined in, in terms of like sexiness. I mean, given the exception of Roger Rabbit, Ryan, but like, but, um, <laughs> but in terms of like violence and horror, you know, um, there were, there was so much more latitude definitely in kids movies, um, back then. Oh, yeah. I, I want to look at the, like, what I want to do is I want to look at like, um, because I can't do math <laughs> so quickly right now. Um, I want to look at like, like how old were the people that were making like decisions at the movie studios, you know, where they like, they must've been like in their thirties and forties. Right. So then like, what generation do they belong to? And like, what does that generation, what is that generation's bone to pick with kids? <laughs> like, you know? Well, and you also have to wonder like, what makes them think, Oh, well, we will scare these children to death. But showing them, let's say, a boob is worse. Like, (laughs) I I don't really understand. Like, watching Watcher in the Woods, like, obviously, you know, I'm in my 30s. I'm not scared of this. But if I would have saw this as a kid, like, these children doing a seance and then the girl just disappears on a solar eclipse, I would have been like, what the hell? Like, I'm never playing with the kids. Like, I'm never going outside because I'm going to disappear in the woods. And it's just wild to me that, oh, yeah, this is a perfect plot for a children's film. Whereas, to your point, like, showing any sort of, like, love or nudity, that is worse. 
like oh, at, in this time era. It, oh, it's definitely. very weird. Yeah, no, there's so many movies that I, I like, you know, for instance, just the one I was talking about, The Witches of Eastwick. I loved that movie so much as a little kid, as a child. Okay? And um, <laughs> there are so many movies that I, I go through now and I'm like, I would never let Wolfgang watch any of these movies, you know, and Wolfgang is my son, by the way. Um, and he's about to turn eight. And um, I, there's no way, like, <laughs> there's no way. Um, yeah, I don't know what was going on. What was going on in the 80s? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like kids movies today are even more uh, adverse to both sex and violence, but like even more so um than they were back then just from like the kids movies i've seen to review and stuff mm-hmm. um like i feel like there isn't that like i feel like there's so many movies that are targeted towards you know six to seven year olds and then like marvel movies and there's nothing in between for kids who are like you know nine ten eleven twelve that has like a little bit more you know what i mean that sort of like pg kind of like thrilling pg movie like everything is pretty much like cartoons and then you go to like pg-13 action blockbusters and you know even those like you know just thinking over the course of the you know the first iron man movie there's a bunch of jokes about him having sex and he has a stripper pole on his private jet and like that would never fly in a marvel movie that came out this year i feel like you know what i mean like it's still it's so much um like that's that's still a thing that that is kind of you know taboo for like mainstream american movies well you you have a point ryan and um i'm just speaking as a parent um you know even the thing is that there's there's all these like weird kind of like rules now in terms of even like the length of time right like um for for whatever you know for whatever criticism it's gotten like i was i was like thank god for the sonic movie my goodness like it's it's exactly what you described like it fills in the gap from like you know like a movie like you know the trolls world tour or trolls anything you know um Mm -hmm. to like you know a marvel movie which i let my son watch when he was little i mean i let him see the marvel movies because they're fun and i feel like they're fantastical enough that you know, he's not going to be like bowled over by them um, emotionally. And, but I mean, in terms of like these weird rules, like, you know, the whole like notion of like these three hour epics, you know, movies like Star Wars um, would be like the perfect kind of like stop gaps for these, for this question that we're talking about now. And, but they're so long, you know, and my son has got, my son is a movie kid because I'm a movie person. Um, And so he can, he can deal with the time but it just gets it just gets to be a bit much, you know, and um, you don't get movies anymore that are sort of like, you know, the in-betweeners like you're talking about. I mean, Sonic was the first one that came to mind that 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 came out that was like an in-betweener. But other than that, I can't really I can't really think of any. Yeah. Yeah. The only other one I can think of that's recent is Detective Pikachu, which is the year before. Yeah. Um, but. But yeah, I mean, and I hope we get more movies like that in the future because I think they're fun. And, you know, I think those were staples growing up when I was a kid. Like animate, animation, as much as I loved it, always felt like it was, you know, for younger kids. At least that's the like the way that it was like marketed and like whatever. And, you know, I remember being a kid and being in like the toy aisle and it would be like you know, toys from Aladdin and then toys from like Terminator 2 and Alien versus Predator, which I was like not allowed to experience at all. <laughs> 
you know what I mean? And there, yeah. there wasn't that like middle ground. Like the closest thing is like uh, was like Ninja Turtles. You know what I mean? Because those movies yeah. were live action. But I was watching mostly the cartoon that was on TV. So it's 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 just an interesting way that we treat kids and the way that we expect them to react to media is is something that's just as, as someone who's not a parent is still very interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to mention, you know, about when I was reading Watcher in the Woods and then watched the actual movie, the, the book did remind me kind of of a like cheap Shirley Jackson type read, which I just have to mention uh, before we sign off on this topic is that probably one of my favorite adaptations that has come out in which I read the book and then just really loved the movie, which it was, we have always lived in the castle, which was a Shirley Jackson book. And the movie just came out in 2018. So it's not an eighties flick. uh, But if you have not seen this, this was like an example of where I felt the director really understood the material, um, as did the screenwriter, which I'm not sure who the screenwriter was, but the director was Stacey Passan. And it just was like the book actually came to life through the movie. And I feel like that is so rare to actually happen where you're just as the reader and then as the film watcher, you're just pleased with both. Uh, wow. Yeah, and I would highly recommend it. It also has Crispin Glover in it, so that's like a plus. Oh, there you go. Uh, which 80s icon. Now we know, icon. Why. Now we know <laughs> but, why you recommend it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But seriously, like, when I was watching, because, again, because I haven't read a ton of books, like, I couldn't stop thinking about how, wow, like, that movie got it right when I was watching Watcher in the Woods, because it's just interesting you know, to Ryan's point with like Roger Rabbit, how much they will stray away from the source material. And I guess so much, they take liberties with it. And yeah, I think it's just so rare that you find a book and a movie and you're just pleased with both. Absolutely. When you, when you can, when you can find that, that's, I don't know. That's what seeing a shooting star. I feel like even seeing a shooting star is way more common than than what you just described. Yeah. And what's upsetting to me more about the we have always lived in a castle is the movie basically got like no press. I think it went straight, like direct to on demand, which was just so upsetting to me. Uh, Because, and well, I mean, now that's becoming a more common occurrence. So, like, I'm hoping that one thing that does come out of this is that I think before all this COVID stuff, if something went like direct on demand, it meant that maybe it wasn't, you know, worth as much of your time because it's not getting a theatrical release. But I think now that's going to change because you know, more films are just being forced to be put out that way. Uh, But I feel when We Have Always Lived in the Castle came out and it went direct on demand, it made people think that maybe it wasn't very good, which was upsetting to me. So if you both haven't seen it, I I highly recommend checking it out. I definitely will, um, because you said you gave it such high praise, because I especially with Shirley Jackson, like no way would I ever watch any 
film adaptation of any of her books because she's her books are so I love them so much I would never I there there are just some there are just some books that I won't watch the movie of like right swinging, swinging wildly like I will never watch um the Tom Cruise version of the firm because I mean, I really love that book. I don't care if it's like mass market, crazed 90s, you know, kind of like fodder book. It's a really good book. I love it. And I'll never watch the movie. Um, and uh, funnily enough, like, I can't even believe I'm putting John Grisham and Shirley Jackson in the same category. But I, I would never watch any adaptation of her books. But if you say so, I didn't even and to, to your point, I didn't even hear about that. I thought you were going to say that you really liked The Haunting of Hill House series. Well, it's so funny. I, I tried watching that and I had read the book first and I could not get into it because it was like annoying me <laughs> because like I love the book so much. I love the book so much. And then watching the TV show, I was like, no, I, I, I can't watch this. And yeah. I think I got maybe two episodes in. Totally. I had I had a similar experience with um, the book You by Carolyn Kepnes. And I know that turned into like a huge show on I think Showtime or HBO, the, the series You about the uh, bookstore serial killer. And I love that book so much. And I was like, wow, I can't wait till this, you know, this adaptation is great. And I can't wait. And I watched a little bit of it. And I was like, no, thanks. Bye. <laughs> and, uh, I yeah so uh, thank you for telling about um the haunting of hill house because I, I I didn't know about it at all and uh, to your point and um I would def I'll definitely check it out cool Ryan have you read any of Shirley Jackson's works uh I have not uh it's been on my list for a while since that haunting of hill house series came out which I also have not seen um mm -hmm. just because um I you know I I would like to experience some of her work. I'm looking forward to the uh, Elizabeth Moss biopic that's supposed to come out pretty soon. It's so good. Yeah, I can't it's wait to so see that. Good. Yeah, I I can't, I, like that movie, I wish it was coming out in theater, but I guess, you know, I'm glad it's just coming out. And that director, Josephine Decker, is to me, like on my watch list, like anything she's doing, I, I want to watch. And I think she really did a great job with the movie. And Elizabeth Moss, surprisingly, I am finding is becoming one of my like probably favorite living actors. Like she is just amazing. Like she can just do anything, it seems. So she's I, totally, I, yeah, she's, she's like an acting acrobat. She can do any, she can do anything. Yeah. So, Ryan, I'm glad you brought up that movie because I, I really hope people go out and watch it. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is the one I don't I still don't feel like I like, even though I definitely have enjoyed her in a lot of things. And I definitely enjoy the projects that she chooses to do. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe one more will will tip the balance for me. Yeah, she definitely takes chances. I mean, she's not doing the same type of role over and over again, uh, which I always find admirable. You know, somebody that is taking chances, putting themselves out there and kind of getting uncomfortable, so to speak. So, yeah, I, I hope that this one will maybe turn your view on her. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't watched her in the kitchen, maybe watch her in the kitchen. 
Uh, I did not like that movie. She was fine in it. I thought she was but, really good in it. Uh, I mean, I've, I've seen a bunch of stuff. She's re- she. It's not that she gives bad performances. It's just there's something about her that I just... I don't know. I don't immediately... I'm not at the point where I'm like, oh, Elizabeth Moss is in it, therefore I have to watch it. It's like, oh, that's an interesting movie that she happens to be in. Gotcha. Um, Yeah, I thought The Kitchen, like, she was the best character in that movie. And I enjoyed her performance the most out of the rest of them. But I also, I really enjoyed the invisible man. And then again with Shirley is kind of what really confirmed for me, like, okay, I like this lady. Like I'm going to (laughs) watch things that she's in. Mm -hmm. So cool. Um, Well, before we sign off, uh, don't forget that you can find a breakdown of the episodes on moviejohn.com where you can also subscribe to our quarterly print scene and our Spring issue is currently out, and you can find that at moviejohn.com slash shop. You can also follow the podcast on social media. We are on Twitter at I Saw in a Movie. And if you're seeking advice, you can send us questions to dear I Saw in a Movie at gmail.com. And if you enjoy snail mail, postal mail, um, Ryan and I both do, you can write to us at P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA, 19145, Attention Movie John. And Ryan, where can people find you at on the internet? Sure. Uh, people can find me on uh, Twitter, Letterbox, and Goodreads at Silber, whatever, that's with a B. And you can find my writing uh, in this latest issue of Movie John, as well as Cinema76.com. And Jess, where can people find you at? And feel free to plug your show, too. Um, thanks. People can find me on Instagram. That's at Movies to be Martyred by Podcast. Um, you can find me on Twitter. And the Twitter uh, handle is kind of interesting. It's at 2TO underscore murdered. Um, Or I can always get get to me, uh, movies to be murdered by at gmail.com. My writing is on the moviejohn.com website. So, yeah. Yeah, and you can find me on Instagram at The Old Sport or Twitter at Bonjour Old Sport. Also, check out my other podcast, Cinematic Crypt, in which I go six feet under to uncover films of Hollywood's past. And you can find that wherever you catch your pods or download at moviejohn.com. So before we go, um, I do have a piece of advice for today. I don't know if either of you do, but I will go first. Um, My advice is compliments of Mrs. Curtis, who is the mother in Watcher in the Woods. And she says, older people, when they live alone, tend to be a bit unusual. And I thought that this was a really great piece of advice because I can definitely see that as I get older, I'm going to end up very probably more odd than I am now, but also just creating rituals of sorts and probably will be misunderstood by people. So I thought that was a pretty good one. Uh, Ryan, do you have a piece of advice? 
I do. And th- and this one is, is really kind of simple, but you know, throughout Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there's a lot of commentary on the fact that Roger and Jessica Rabbit are husband and wife um, because he is a cartoon rabbit and she is a cartoon um, pin-up nightclub singer. <laughs> um, and, you know, but I think one of the things that surprised me is that they really do end up showing that these two do understand each other. And it's one of the last lines of the movie after they've been through the terror of Judge Doom and unraveling this mystery. And she goes, come on, Roger, let's go home. I'll bake you a carrot cake. <laughs> and I think that's just, it's just the, the simple things, you know, after you've had a hard like uh, gone through a hard experience having you know a favorite dessert is a a good way to kind of unwind and bounce back a little bit and jesse did you have anything from your film i did um i just if anything i wanted to impart um being that i live in a very beautiful but small town um that is very homogenous um, just like the witches in the witches of Eastwick. Um, I want to just say, um, in terms of what you like, just follow, follow what you follow your heart, follow your thoughts, follow your, follow where your bliss is, follow your bliss. Um, just like the witches do in the movie, you know, if it leads you to a bad place, just turn around and go somewhere else, just like they do. And don't let anyone's thoughts of what's prim and proper or, or canon or not canon get in your way just be happy and that's that's key to that's key to life especially right now i agree all right well thanks for listening everyone and thank you so much jesse for coming on the show this was really fun yeah you're (laughs) you're of course welcome back anytime cool thank you so much i had a great time Ryan, Rosalie, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, This was great. And for our listeners out there, remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. Thanks for listening. Bye.